Uh, Acts chapter number one, would you join me? Acts chapter number one. This is, I guess, the third message in this book. As we're going through the book of Acts, we're just starting it out. Spent one week on uh, an introduction, and then last week we covered verses one through five. As you see on your handout, we will only cover, Lord willing, three verses. There'll be plenty in verses six, seven, and eight to keep us busy, um, but to kind of uh, go ahead and mention, we'll not be moving always at a pace of three verses. If I, had to, if I had to guess, I think the rest of the chapter will cover in two weeks, probably, if I had to guess, that would be my thought there. Um, all right, Acts chapter number one, in a few minutes, a few moments, we'll be looking at verses six, seven, and eight, uh, but quick recap, all right? Uh, so we have learned that the same person who wrote the Gospel of Luke is the same author of the book of Acts, writing to a man named Theophilus. So this is two-volume work. We're studying the second volume. The, one of the things that we learned last week is that as in the first five verses, Luke is saying that in his Gospel of Luke, he covered what Jesus began to do and teach. We talked about what Jesus did and what Jesus taught, but we really emphasized because we felt it was emphasized in the verse Luke's gospel is about what Jesus began to do, what Jesus began, setting the stage for an implied word of that this second volume is about what Jesus continues to do, even though you're not going to see him physically throughout the passages once we get past verse, uh, once we get past chapter number one here in just a few minutes or next week, uh, we're going to see Jesus ascended. But this, this volume is still about what Jesus continues to do, whereas the gospel is what he did in person, in a physical body, while on earth himself. The book of Acts is about what he continues to do through his spiritual body, the church, by infusing the church with his Holy Spirit. He's still doing it, but it's his Holy Spirit doing it. And we also brought this analogy. There, was a passing, there is a passing of the baton. If we think of the gospel... Jesus is the gospel. He speaks the good news about his death to pay for our sins. As he's leaving, he passes the baton to his apostles who have then passed the baton on down through the ages, beyond their lifetime and through their writings that has been passed down to us even here today. And the gospel will even be offered briefly within today's message. Uh, it's been passed down. So there's this passing of the baton. But we noticed... The apostles are key players in this. So they were the initial receiver of the baton of the gospel. The Lord gave that to them. What was so unique about them? We noticed they were uniquely, specially chosen men, 12 of them. We add on Paul in that, making 13 eventually as we get to chapter 9. And then we noted that they were also convinced men. They, the Lord Jesus specially convinced his first representatives, his apostles, that he really did rise again from the dead. He appeared to them. He spoke to them. He showed them his hands and feet. The same body that was crucified is now resurrected. He ate bread and fish with them. He proved that he really is alive. He convinced them. And then we also noticed that he commanded them very specifically to go make disciples of all the nations. Go make disciples to Christ. But then as we hit verses 4 and 5, this will be our last lead in. We noticed that Jesus gave something unusual. So feel the tension. You feel the tension there? They've just been given this command in Galilee, go make disciples of all the nations, and yet they're told to wait in Jerusalem. So which is it? We're supposed to go make... You wait in, in Jerusalem, wait, stay there until the promise of the Father, which you heard from Christ, 
And that promise is that there's go- they will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And he says, not many days. Not many days from now. So now they know it's not going to be thousands of years like it took for the Messiah to come. The Spirit's going to come in a matter of days. When you hear not many days, I don't know about you, but I think if it's not many, then it's a few days. And it ends up being 10 days. They don't know that. It ends up being 10 days after he's ascended. So there's our background. Look at, if you would now, verse 6. In a moment, I'm going to key, because we only have three verses. We don't have lots of text today. But we got some key words, and I hope you'll feel right out of the gate the first little word, S-O. So, what we're about to read, what's going to happen in verse 6, is happening because of verses 3, 4, and 5. Why is verse 6 happening? Because of the end of verse 3. And because of verse 4 and 5, you guys go wait in Jerusalem until the promise of the Holy Spirit comes, and you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Verse 6 says, so... The idea because of that, when, that's another key word, that tells me something. So when they had come together, is everybody already feeling that? Verses 4 and 5 is on one occasion, not exactly sure where. Did verse 4 and 5 happen in Galilee, or is verse 4 and 5 happening in Jerusalem? They're told that he's eating a meal with them while staying with them, eating a meal. He says, stay in Jerusalem, don't leave, wait for the promise of the Father. Now, verse 6, so when they had come together, that tells me something about verse 4 and 5, about 5 and 6. Now, let me read the verse. So when they had come together, so, because, therefore, thus, because of verse 3, 4, and 5, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I didn't say that nearly as excited as they would have said it. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? This is on their hearts, everything. This, this makes sense to them. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Verse 7. He said to them, it is not for you to know times. It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. It's not for you. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel this time? It's not for you to know. It's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has fixed in his own authority. But, so, not that, but this, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit, remember he said the Holy Spirit's coming in days, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the end of the earth. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? It's not for you to know the times or the seasons. That's in the Father's authority. But you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses to these regions. So each verse kind of has a thought. I thought about splitting verse 8, but we'll kind of combine the thoughts there this morning. Let's notice three things out of our text. And I hope, ask the Lord to really draw you in this morning to learn from his word, to be challenged, and to have an obedient. What if we just right out of the gate say, Lord, uh, whatever is true that is taught, help me to adjust my life accordingly as needed. Approach it with that spirit. Verse number 6, would you notice number 1? I, I, when I read this, I 
again, this is my take on it. To me, this sounds like a very logical question about the kingdom. This is a very logical question. This is a logical question. What happens in verse 6, there's a lot of excitement, and we just heard the question. I just hit it over and over and over. So let's hear it again. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom? The idea they were asking repeated. It's not just like one, one got pushed forward. Okay, I'll ask him. No, over and over, is, is the kingdom here? Is it time? So guys, listen. Let's, let's do this together. The word so tells us that what's been happening at the end of verse 3 Look back at the end of verse 3. It's not on the screen. He kept showing himself to them over a period of 40 days. What was he doing? He kept speaking about the kingdom. Jesus keeps showing up, proving that he's alive. When he shows up, we don't know the details. All we know is Jesus keeps talking about the kingdom of God. So when they had come together, now let's get the win. Go into Jerusalem Stay there until the promise is fulfilled. And oh, by the way, it'll only be days when you'll be baptized in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's coming in a matter of days. So here's what that tells me. In a moment, I want you to write a note, but I want you to kind of feel it first. Ready? The kingdom of God is what we're going to be talking about here for the next few minutes. The Old Testament, their world, they didn't have the New Testament. The Old Testament linked the kingdom of God with two main things. Kingdom of God will come when? Two things. When the Messiah comes. So the kingdom, this thousand-year reign that they believe in, is going to come when the Messiah comes. And the other thing that is linked in a few places is there's going to be a special outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So feel what they're going through. Put it, start putting it together. He keeps showing up. He keeps talking about the kingdom. He tells them to go stay in Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Do do you see the factors? They know, well, wait a minute. This is what the rabbis have taught us all through our lives, that this kingdom is coming, and it's attached to the coming of the Messiah and a special outpouring of the Spirit. We know you're the Messiah. You just told us the Spirit's coming in not many days, and there's a gap of time. Everybody feel the gap of time between verse 4 and 5 and down to verse 6? So verse 4 and 5 is wait. I don't know if that happens in Galilee or they're already in Jerusalem. But here's what we're going to know. Verse 6 happens just outside of Jerusalem, about three-quarter mile away, over on the Mount of Olives. And so here they are. They've been called out there. Can you feel why they're asking this question? Now write that thought down. Since the Old Testament linked the visible kingdom of God with the coming of the Messiah, and he's the Messiah, and the coming of the Holy Spirit, special outpouring of the Spirit, then because Jesus' repeated talk about the kingdom over and over, That combined with his promise that the Holy Spirit's coming in not many days, and oh, by the way, by this point, it had been a few days since he would have said that, then they come to the conclusion that has to be it. So the gap of time between verse 5 and verse 6 tells me they had time to discuss this with each other. They had time to work each each other up, kind of expecting. He's... We're his special chosen people. He's told us to stay in the capital city where the Spirit's going to be poured out. He's the Messiah. This is it. The kingdom is here. Very logical question. Makes sense. Lord, is this the moment we've been waiting for? Is this the moment Israel's been waiting for for literally like a thousand years? Is it finally here? You can feel their excitement. Now notice again, another thought. Look at verse number six. There's two key words. 
further. Lord, will you at this time restore? Let's put ourselves in their mind. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Will you restore the kingdom? Now hear it. The word restore linked with Israel, will you restore the kingdom to Israel, shows us that as Jesus comes and he keeps talking about the kingdom of God, what they're hearing, whatever he's saying, whatever he means, what they're hearing is being filtered through their view of the kingdom. What is their view of the kingdom? They have a very nationalistic view of the kingdom. So Jesus keeps talking. They are hearing through a filter of a very nationalistic view of the kingdom of God, which is anticipating there's going to be, any moment now, a worldwide version a greater worldwide version of the kingdoms of David and Solomon. And they're excited. Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom? They're thinking back to the glory days of Israel when it was awesome. When David conquered Israel's enemies and they had the boundaries, their natural boundaries, those in essence close to what God had promised the nation of Israel would have. David had lots of, lots of battles. He couldn't build the temple, but his son Solomon inherits conquered enemies. And all of a sudden, the kingdom has even expanded a little further. And they're trading with people. And Solomon is like famous all around. And people are coming just to hear his wisdom. And that's the golden age. And their thought is that times who knows what all over the whole world. They probably didn't have a clue that there was a North and South America. But in their mind, we're going to be the number one nation all around the world. That's what they're hearing, a nationalistic Israel view of the kingdom. But to complete your note, I want you to write this. The difficult thing, that's what's in their mind. We know that because of the words restore to Israel. But the word kingdom is actually a very difficult word when we read it in the Bible because it can have different shades of meaning depending on the context. So depending on the context that the word kingdom is used in, it can mean different things or different shades of things. Does that make sense? I, I know you may be writing that. I want you to kind of hear what I'm about to say. Uh, the actual word kingdom may not be different, a different Hebrew word or a different Greek word from another use of the word kingdom. But the way it's used in the text can have a different idea, a different shade of meaning. We have words like this in English. I pointed them out before. I won't develop it all, but we use the word love, right? It's, we have that one English word, love. And we love our little dog. And we love cheeseburgers. Same word. Very kind of different. Oh, and you love mom and dad and you love your wife and your husband and you love your kids. And you love America. Same word. We use the word heart, right? Heart. Love the Lord with all our heart. We use it that way with all of our being. We'll talk about our heart as a muscle or we're going into the heart of the jungle, the center of something. We'll do this with the word world. The world is a planet. The world is the people on the planet. The world is this system that is in the world that is against God. Or the world of sports and the world of science. We use the same word, we, but we use it kind of where there's different shades of meaning using the exact same word. The word kingdom is kind of tricky. Now, I want to offer something to you. They keep hearing Jesus talk about the kingdom. They have a nationalistic view in their, in their mind. And they assume that he's talking about the same thing they have in their mind. Because I want to offer that they, they're thinking this for a good reason. They have preconceived notions. I'm going to offer to you that they have incomplete 
preconceived notions about the kingdom. And that's why they're saying, are you at this? So you've been talking about the kingdom. Are you ready to restore the kingdom to Israel? So they have preconceived, incomplete notions. And we can understand why. The rabbis have been teaching this. And just be honest, when you study the Old Testament, the gap of time between Jesus, between the Messiah's first coming and his still yet future second coming, that gap of time is not real obvious when you're in the Old Testament looking in the future, looking at the Bible. It's not real clear. You don't see it. We see it now, and we know it's at least 2,000 years. We don't know how much longer. But they didn't see it, and that's not what they were taught. And so they have this incomplete view. They don't see this thing called the church. They see all these promises about the nation of Israel. Now, I'm, this is my, here's my opinion. I am offering you my opinion. Because um, there's different rules of thought here. I believe their view was incomplete. It was too small. Some people would say their view of the kingdom was not just incomplete. It was totally wrong. Good Bible scholars would say their view is totally wrong. Why? Because in their view, there is a special emphasis on Israel. There's a special allotment for the nation of Israel. And there are good Bible scholars who say all those Old Testament promises that were said about the nation of Israel, Israel rejected those, and they rejected their Messiah. And all those promises have been rolled over now onto the church, which is blended and mixed with Jews Saved Jews and Gentiles. And all those promises are now just to be put on the church. And so there's not this Jewish emphasis. And here's where I kind of struggle. This is me. There are different schools of theology out there. And I've never studied them all. Frankly, I'm not like burdened to study them all. But I almost get the sense when I hear them like, well, if, if you have this belief, then you have to have all of what this group says. What now? If I believe that. Yeah, if you're, you're in this camp. Where I kind of think, well, I kind of believe that. In that group, and I also believe this in this group, and I believe that. You'll hear these words like covenant theology, reform theology, dispensationalism. And it's almost as though, well, you fit into this one. So here's where I struggle. I know that the church inherits the kingdom. But when I read Romans 11, and I hear Paul talk about this group of Jews at the end who get saved... And they're brought back to Christ, and they're all saved, and they move into the kingdom. And especially, like just recently, I'm in the book of, of Ezekiel. And just finish that. It's not my favorite reading, right? But the last nine chapters from Ezekiel 40 to 48 is about this restored temple. And it's very specific dimensions. And it talks about this river comes from like the Holy of Holies in this future yet not yet happened version of the temple that's restored. And the river is going to flow out of the Holy of Holies through the holy place, come out headed eastward, and it's going to go south, and it's going to head out eastward, southward toward the desert area, and all this fruit's going to happen. And there's all these land allotments, very specific tribe by tribe throughout the land of Israel, and the prince is going to be there in Jerusalem, and he's going to be ruling and reigning. And I read that, and I take the Bible literally, and I'm like, that hasn't happened yet. So I say... They were incomplete. They didn't see the church, yet I believe there is still going to be unfulfilled, yet unfulfilled prophecies to be fulfilled on the nation of Israel and on the church. And I know some would hear me and say, that doesn't match with all your other preaching. I'm like, well, get over it. And I may be too simple in how I presented that. Now, quickly, let's do this. They're thinking one thing. Is that what Jesus is, is talking about? 
So we said this word kingdom can have different shades of meaning. Let me offer to you three phases, three aspects of the kingdom. Um, and we'll quickly hit passages that go with it. Number one, would you, and we've done this before, so I'm going to do it very quickly. Number one, would you notice the universal kingdom of God? The universal kingdom of God. If you've written that, look on the screen. Psalm 103, look at verse 19. Psalm 103, 19. This is what the Bible says. So we're talking about the aspect of the kingdom of God that's the universal kingdom of God. Verse 19 of Psalm 103. The Lord has established, the Lord has, past tense, has, has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all, period. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens. It's already there. It's continuous, going. And his kingdom rules presently over all. Over all what? His kingdom rules over. His throne is set up in the heavens and God's kingdom rules over all. All what? All everything. All things, all people, all creatures, all places. Like, what do you mean all places? All places. Like, what, like what place? All places. Yeah, but like, what if we go all places, all times? For all eternity past, all eternity future, God's kingdom rules over all. If you want to write it down, you can write this. God, and we touched on this very recently, three weeks ago in our message on the omniscience of God. God sovereignly rules over all things. In all places, at all times. And we noted that because of that, nothing ever catches him off guard. Yes, he knows everything. He knows everything before it happens. But it's much more than that. It's more than he knows what's going to happen. God actually, yes, he allows. He, he does. He allows things to happen. And he knows they're going to happen. Even things that we don't like. But it's more than that. He designs things and controls things to bring about in a very unusual, strange way to us his ultimate stated purposes in places like Romans 8, Romans 9, Ephesians 1. So he has these stated purposes and God in his universal kingdom is controlling because he's designed and stated all these things are heading this direction. Everything's right on schedule even though it doesn't seem like it to us. That's universal kingdom. Again, I'm not going to develop that more than that. So it's not just this idea, one day God's going to be a king. No, he's already always a king. Secondly, I want you to notice, not just the universal kingdom of God, but the coming kingdom of God. Notice the coming kingdom of God. And I'm going to read just a couple of verses that I often associate with this thought. And it's in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Now, Daniel's go he's going to get a vision. And he's, he's get, again, he's, he's here Looking forward, and he's getting a vision about something that's going to happen here. It's so sure to happen that he writes it as if it's in past tense. Look on your screen. Daniel 7, verse 13. So here's that coming kingdom. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. So a man, one of us. So behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, which represents God, the Father, the Almighty, Yahweh. Here comes this Son of Man who came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So the Son of Man is presented before the Ancient of Days. What happens? And to him, this Son of Man, this Messiah Christ figure, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. What kind of kingdom? That all peoples, all peoples, 
nations and languages should serve him. That tells me all people's nations and languages should serve him. That tells me this has not happened yet. This is a vision for the future. The verse finishes, Daniel writes, His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So there's this future kingdom that is coming. Daniel, we just read, Daniel 7. Uh, Y'all remember this? Jesus says, when you pray, say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. What's the next line? Your kingdom. We're to pray. God, we want you to hallow your name, make it special. Do it in my life. Make your name special and famous around the world. And let your kingdom come. Implying that it's not here yet. So there's this future kingdom. And let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you get chance, go look at Revelation. We'll have time to do it now. Revelation 20, verses 1 through 7. Satan's going to be put in a pit. And there's going to be Christ on a throne. And there's going to be other people on other thrones under Christ's throne. And for a thousand years, key key word, thousand years. Revelation, very specific. For a thousand years, they're going to rule and reign with Christ. And all these things are happening. Write this thought. What is this coming kingdom? Daniel, Matthew 6, Revelation 20. Verse 1 through 7 and many others passages all point to a future millennial thousand year kingdom in which Jesus himself will personally and visibly rule on earth as he does now in heaven. What he wants done is being done in heaven but right now we know that not everything that he morally wants being done on earth is not being done but the day is coming when he will visibly rule on earth and everything will be done on earth just as it currently is being done according to His will in heaven. So there's a universal kingdom that is always in place. There's a coming kingdom. Let me make a distinction. Watch. The coming kingdom is actually not separate from the universal. It's actually an aspect of that one. The Bible talks about it in very special, unique terms, this coming kingdom. But then there's a third aspect. We know which one they have in their mind, right? Is he going to restore the kingdom? They're thinking the second coming kingdom, the second one you just wrote about. But there's actually a third kingdom that we want to talk about. And again, you'll not see this exact wording, but I think it's it's good, uh, uh, proper to, to look at it this way. Number three, there's the kingdom of God within believers. The kingdom of God within believers. So I want you here... To not just look at the screen. After you write that, get your Bible. Turn over to John 3. John chapter 3. And I want to really invite you to do the following. Read this with me. I'll read it out loud. But I want you to read it as if you've not heard it before. I know that's hard. I tried to do that this week. Jeff, you've read this literally a hundred times. Read it as if you've never read it before. John chapter 3. So there's this other aspect of the kingdom. Right, quickly. John chapter 3, we know there's this, this man named Nicodemus. He's a ruler, one of the rulers of the Jews. He's a Pharisee. Um, eventually, they will become the enemies of Jesus on earth, but not Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a true seeker. He comes to Jesus at nighttime, and he tries to brag on the Lord, but Jesus goes right past his bragging on him and flattering him, and he jumps right to the heart of the issue. Listen to John 3, verse 3, as if you've never heard it before. Jesus answered him, truly, I hear the Bible, truly, truly, I say to you, unless 
one is born, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, instead of just blowing away, that's the craziest sounding thing I've ever heard. I don't want to have anything to do with you. This man wants to know the truth, but he's confused. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? How can a man be born when he is old? Apparently he was already older. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Did you catch what Jesus says? So we're talking about this kingdom of God within believers. Jesus has just told us there is a literal kingdom of God, but the only people who will see it and enter it are those who have been born again. You have to be born again. The word again can have like three different meanings. I want you to hear them and think which one is it. The word again here can mean born in a way that is radically new. Radically new and different. It can mean born from above. In other words, something God does. Or it can mean again the second time. Now hear them. The word again, Jesus says, you're going to go in the kingdom. You want to see the kingdom of God? You want to experience heaven? You want to experience the millennial kingdom on earth? You have to be born again. What does that mean? Does it mean something radically new and different? Does it mean a birth that is from above that God does? Or does it mean again a second time? And the answer is all of the above. Nicodemus heard what? What does Nicodemus? We know which one he thinks it is. You got to do it second time. He hears second. How can a man be born when he's old? Does he enter a second time into his mother? He hears that. All three are actually true. Now, I'm not going to delve into this, and there are some folks that would definitely disagree with what I'm about to offer to you, but look one more time at verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, I believe he's making a couplet there. Some would say Jesus is assuming physical birth, and this born of water and of the Spirit has to do with baptism and the one I'm going to offer you. But I believe what the Lord is, again, my opinion, uh, is what the Lord has done here is he's explained. Look at verse 5 with your eyes. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. I believe he just laid out the two births. The born of water, to me, my understanding there would be, is that all of you have already been born of water because you were in your mother's womb and the water broke and the womb and the amniotic fluid broke, and you got really uncomfortable, and then you wanted out, and then you were born, right? So you've been born of water. That's, you've done that one. You've been born physically, but you have to be born spiritually. Why do we have to be born spiritually? Because we've all been born physically, but because Adam sinned, all of us as his descendants, when we're born, are born physically alive. 
with a soul that is awake and aware and alive, but with a spirit that is dead. And so we need that spiritual part of us to be radically awakened to something brand new. So we need two births, physical birth and the spiritual birth. Now, how does that happen? I want you to write it first. I'm going to break my usual order. Usually I, I like to teach to it and read it, and then we write it. But I'm going to have you write it first, and then we'll see it in the text. How are we born again? How do we get our dead spirit to come to life? Here's how it happens. The moment a person hears God's promise, you got to hear it first. The moment a a person hears God's promise, the gospel, God's promise is about Jesus. The moment they hear that, first thing, and trust his death to count as for them as sufficient to pay for their sin. Everybody catch what I did? You say, "I'm, I'm here this morning. I'm not yet a Christian. How do you do it? Literally, this note is telling you. The moment that you hear what Jesus has done for you and what God says about it, when you hear it and you respond by trusting it, I mean not even moving your vocal cords, not moving your body, the moment you like hear it, like what? Well then, I'm I'm thinking out loud, well then I'm doing that. The moment you really do it in your soul and spirit, you start trusting Jesus' death to count for you, At that moment, that person enters the spiritual kingdom of God. Write that thought. God's spiritual kingdom is initiated in that person because in that moment, Christ comes and occupies the throne of their heart. We don't just take Christ as our Savior. We receive Him also as the Lord. He's Savior and Lord. I'm putting my faith in Him. and I don't just want a a get-out-of-hell-free card. Lord, I want you to come and you dominate my life. I want the whole thing. And that's salvation. Where is that seen? So you're writing that. Look at John chapter 3 verse 14 quickly. Look at John 3 14. Jesus is still talking. I'm, I'm skipping a lot. He's still talking to Nicodemus. And he says, hey Nicodemus. As Moses and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Pause. Children of Israel are 40 years out in the wilderness. They, some of them are keep getting bit by snakes, poisonous snakes. People are dying. Moses goes and tells God. Some of our people are getting bit by poisonous snakes and they're dying. Can anything be done? God says, make a brazen serpent. Put it on a tall pole. Put that pole up in the middle of the camp. When someone gets bit, they'll look up at the brazen serpent. And if they'll look at that brazen serpent, they will not die. They'll be healed of the snake bite. And that was all symbolic pointing to the future. Look at verse 14 again. Jesus says... As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, lifted up the serpent, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Why? That whoever, you included, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is talking. As Moses did that, so he's saying himself, I, the Son of Man, I have to be lifted up so that whoever believes in him, the Son of Man himself, may have eternal life. What is this lifted up? I think it's clearly two things, not just one. He's saying, I have to be lifted up on a cross. I have to be lifted up on a cross and die for your sins. But then I have to be exalted by people. I have to be put before lost people and and lifted up so that they see me as sufficient. And I'm put forth and the message goes out. Put your faith in Christ. Look up to Christ. And when you do that, just as those people didn't die physically, you will now not die spiritually. You'll have eternal life. 
If that wasn't enough, John now gives commentary on this. Jesus isn't talking apparently anymore. John now comes in, verse 16. For God so loved the world. Now maybe Jesus is saying this. I'm not sure. The point is this. God's word says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, should not perish, should not perish, but have eternal life. And then the spiritual kingdom starts in that person's life. Immediately, Christ is on something brand new has happened. Their spirit is now awake and aware. It's alive. And now Christ, his Holy Spirit, comes and lives inside and he takes abode. And so all of that, as you go back to Acts, springs from a logical question. They heard coming kingdom. What did Jesus mean? I believe, I believe Jesus, when he kept talking about the kingdom, he's talking about this spiritual kingdom. The spiritual kingdom, when you, if you get in it, then you will be in the kingdom when it comes, the physical earthly kingdom when it comes. You got to do this first. Order matters. Now, number two, would you look with me? This will be a much shorter point. Number two this morning, there's a firm rebuke of the apostles. I don't think it's, I think it's gentle. It's a gentle rebuke, but also it's firm. The Lord is gentle and yet firm with his apostles. Look at verse 7. Hey, will you, Lord, will you at this time? This, this, is this it? Is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom? The Lord says in verse 7, He said to them, It is not for you to know. It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. Now, I hope right now, as we move to the second point, that you'll like say, Okay, I, I want to re-engage. I want to really get this point. If I haven't made you confused enough already, I'm going to throw... Three more terms at you. Most of you kind of already know, but some wouldn't. And I'm not an expert on these, right? A while ago, I referred to a millennium, a thousand-year reign on, on earth. Among Christians, there are pre-millennialists. And there are post-millennialists. Pre-millennialists say, oh, there's going to be a kingdom on earth. But before that happens, Christ returns to earth the second time. We, I'm in this group. Grace feels officially in this group. If you're not, you ought to join us. Okay. <laughs> we believe in the pre-millennial view. Christ will come back literally on earth before the millennium. Now, there's different versions of that because we know there's a tribulation. And some Christians believe he will come at the start of the, before the tribulation starts, some say he, he will come in the middle of the seven-year tribulation, and some say he's coming at the end of the tribulation, but that pre and mid and post-trib view is all still pre-millennial view. Then there's the post-millennial view that says, oh yeah, there's going to be this millennium, but Jesus doesn't come back until the end of it. Well, then how is there like this thousand years of blessing and good times and all that? Oh, the church is going to do such a good job of fulfilling the Great Commission. We're going to win the world over and teach everybody how to obey all the commands of Christ. And it's going to be the millennium on earth. And at the end of that, then he's going to come back. Yeah, that's not looking so good. That, that, that view doesn't hold water. I said that to say this. There's another view. Which is the what view? The what millennialist? The ah millennial. If you put the letter ah, A in front of somebody, you are now saying, I'm not a theist, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. So watch. 
the amillennialists say, I don't believe he comes there or there. There is no actual literal kingdom. That's all figurative language. We go to eternity. It's just here, you live, you die, you go to eternity. Right? And there'll be a judgment at the end, and we go to eternity. Not real stuff. Jeff, why did you do that long exercise? Watch. Will you at this time restore the kingdom? Is this it? You guys really bought that? Oh, y'all thought that was legit? You thought that was serious? You took that, y'all took that literally? He doesn't do that. Write this thought. Though the amillennialists say there is no literal earthly kingdom, Jesus, what we notice is he does not correct his disciples, his apostles' belief in a literal, visible kingdom on earth. He doesn't correct their thoughts as if it's the wrong thing. Oh, you guys are wrong on that. There's no actual kingdom. Can't believe you bought that. If they were wrong, I contend, and many others would say, this would be the time for the Lord to say, you guys are way off. You missed it. He doesn't correct their thoughts. What does he do? Write this down. Instead, he expands their thinking to move beyond. Y'all want to know when? I want you guys. He doesn't say there is no literal millennial kingdom. What he says is, I want you to shift your focus, expand your thinking to go from a position of being less occupied with when the kingdom is going to start. And I want you to be more occupied with who is going to make it into the kingdom. You really need to understand that note. He is expanding their thinking, shifting their thinking. Guys, I want you to be less occupied with when this is going to happen. I want you to be more more occupied with who gets into the kingdom. Why? Hear me well. Who makes it into the kingdom is more important than when the kingdom begins. Who makes it into the kingdom is much more important than when. When it begins is when it begins. And you and I can't do anything to hurry that up. But what the Lord wants us to know is you can have an influence on who gets into the kingdom. And that's where he wants their thinking to go. Less when, more who can get in. So I told you this point would be shorter, so let me cover just a few things quickly. Prophecy. Right? Prophecy is a great subject. We just sang right at the end, two songs ago. Even so come, Lord Jesus. That's like the last thing. That's the next to the last verse of the whole New Testament. The whole Bible. Next to the last verse. Even so come. So we long. I kind of wonder. I don't think a, a lot of Christians are exactly where that song was. Every heart longing for the day. I think Erica was kind of, Erica was kind of alluding to it. Not a lot of Christians are really that longing. Now, if you live in a land of persecution, they're longing for the return of Christ. America, we're kind of comfortable. Right now, Lord, can you wait? Let me see if my team's going to win the national championship. That's kind of like, yeah, we're, 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 not too, we're not too longing. But it's coming. Prophecy is a great subject, but here's something. And, and again, please hear me. You're going to think for the next just five minutes, boy, Jeff doesn't like prophecy. Jeff loves prophecy, believes in prophecy, and when it comes up, we're going to preach prophecy. We dug in in Matthew 24. We dug in in Matthew 24 and 25, and it was very difficult. Um, I didn't have a lot of fun, but I hope the Lord revealed some truth in that. It was difficult. But here's where we have a problem. A lot of Christians would look as, to prophecy as their favorite, most passionate topic uh, in Christianity. Love it. I uh, love prophecy. And, and that's fine. Please hear me. That is fine. But there's a problem when our passion and our curiosity for prophecy doesn't actually affect our life. That's a problem. 
So I want you to take a quick note. I'm not going to spend long on it. Studying prophecy is good. Studying prophecy is good. It's a good thing. When four things are true. Studying prophecy is good when, number one, when it builds our faith in God's Word. I'm reading the Bible, and all of a sudden, I, I like reading already fulfilled prophecy. I like reading about the, the things that are in Daniel, and then, sure enough, the, the kingdoms came just the way he envisioned, and all the prophecies about Jesus that are true, and it builds our, our faith. Man, the Bible really is true. I mean, God calls this guy here, Cyrus, by name, over a hundred years before he's actually born. Says he's going to be the one that is going to let Israel go back home. I better not get off into that. I love when I see fulfilled prophecy, man, it makes me know the Bible really is the word of God. Builds our faith in scripture. Number two, prophecy is a great thing when it encourages us. You know what? It ends well for us. Life is hard right now, but I've, I've read the Bible and I know how it ends. It doesn't end hard for us. It ends in glory and bliss in heaven in etern- for eternity with Christ. So when it encourages us, that's a good thing. Number three, when prophecy actually calls us to live holier, that's a good thing. I just wonder sometimes if we really, really believed that Jesus could come back at any moment. If we thought Jesus could come back today, then how would that affect our lives and our attitude? How would that affect? We would have less sin in our life if we really believed Christ could come back today. Jesus could come back today. Number four, Prophecy is a great study when it causes us to feel a a greater urgency to evangelize lost people. If you really thought, if you really thought Jesus is going to come today, you might be likely to tell somebody in your family that you think is unsaved, I'm going to tell them the truth before we're taken out. That's when prophecy is a great thing, when it has those. I invite you right now, as you just wrote those, check your heart. You say, I'm one of those that loves prophecy. Great. Does it build your faith? Does it encourage you? Does it cause you? Like, Jesus could come back any moment. I don't want to be found doing that. And I want to be found doing this. Those are great. Look at verse 7 again. I have two more quick thoughts. And then we'll go to the last thing this morning. He said to them, it is not for you to know. It is not for you to know. Grace view. There are some things, and we talked a lot about this three weeks ago when we talked about the omniscience of, of God. There are some things that are mysteries to us that are just in the category of the secret things of God. And listen, the specific details of Christ coming and setting His kingdom up on earth, those specific details belong to the category of the secret things of God that are under His authority that He has not revealed. And He's not going to reveal them. Until it is time. Until right as it's time. Let me say it this way. Three weeks ago we talked about this. If God, some people would ask, if God really is holy and he hates sin and he knows everything before it happens, before he made creation, he knew what would happen. And he has all power and he's completely sovereign. If he really is holy and good, then why has all this happened that has happened? All of the why of that comes under the category of the secret things of God that he's chosen not to reveal. Well, the details of prophecy are in this category of the secret things of God that he's not told us. So, watch. Because they're in that category, what we have to make sure is that we don't let the things that we don't know... By the way, we are naturally curious. We naturally wonder, how does that line up? When is this going to happen? That's natural. But what we have to make sure we don't do is that 
We focus on what's not been revealed so much that we start doubting what has been revealed. Can't do that. And what we can't do here is spend so much time trying to figure out what hasn't been revealed that we don't do what we've been clearly commanded. So there's the secret things, and we spend so much time trying to figure that all out that we don't actually do the clear things. That's what we can't, be, can't do. Now I'm going to make somebody mad right here, but I'm going to say it nicely. I'm going to say it nicely, and I don't, I don't mean it mean. I promise I don't. I, I just want us to kind of understand. And again, I'm not against, I'm for prophecy. They're told it is not for you to know the times or seasons. That's under the Father. Now hear this. Let me just read it for time's sake. If the most enlightened and authoritative writers in the history of the world, hear that. If the most authoritative And the most enlightened who spoke the language of the day and would surely know a lot more about the Hebrew language than we would know today. They were in it. The Greek language was their language. If the most enlightened and authoritative writers in the history of the world were clearly told they would not know the details of when Christ would initiate His visible kingdom on earth, then how foolish are we to think that we can or will somehow have greater insight than them? Do we really think they knew more than us? Oh, no, Jeff, we've had 2,000 years. We've had all these smart guys talk about it for 2,000 years. They've been writing these books. Do you think your smart guys are more inspired and know more than the guys who actually wrote it? No, they don't. These are the apostles. I'm going to get just a touch meaner, but I don't mean it that way. Just a touch. If you habitually devour prophecy books two or three a year and you devour prophecy teaching and preaching because you've subscribed to so-and-so's channel and you watch him all the time because he's got a channel that is non-stop these prophecy things if you habitually devour prophecy preaching teaching and books but you fail to pray and you fail to share the gospel with anyone stop it Stop it. Why? Don't die a supposed expert on prophecy who wins no one to Christ and never makes any disciples for Christ. You don't need to do that. Put another way. Spend your remaining days making disciples instead of guesses. Spend your remaining days making disciples and converts rather than constantly making guesses. So Jeff, you're against prophecy. No, I'm for it when it builds our faith and when it's proper that's why I like expositional preaching. We're going to preach on it when it comes up, but we're not going to go out of our way like some people, like all the time and just let them get a little too worked up, a little passion, a little area for me. Like, why you only focus on that? Always. It should result in more of this, seen by the first word in verse number 8, the word but. Now let's go to verse 8. So we've seen a very logical question, and we've seen Jesus rebukes. Hey, let's worry a little less about when and more about who. And now we're going to see that come full circle in verse number 8. We see a promise of power and a shift of focus. There's a promise of power and a shift of focus. There's a promise of power and there's this redirecting. Hey, I know you guys want to know when, but let's focus on this. Look at verse 8. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons, but. So not that, but 
you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. If this was a Wednesday night, we'd literally stall about five minutes. I'm going to give you just a few seconds. Hey, stay in Jerusalem. Because the promise of the Father, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is going to happen in not many days from now. If you heard that, would you be thinking, okay, Lord, what's that going to do for us? So here's my question for you this morning. This baptism of the Spirit, this being immersed into the Spirit, the Spirit being placed in me. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks when we get into chapter 2. What does that do for us? What does that do? You start your list. What does having the Holy Spirit literally living inside your body, you're a Christian, those of you that are Christians, what does He do for us? This is not an exhaustive list, it's very partial of some that popped into my mind. Let's hit them quickly. What does the Holy Spirit do? Number one, He gives assurance that we are the children of God. He gives assurance that we are the children of God. Notice Romans chapter 8. We'll have supporting verses quickly for each of these. Look at Romans 8, verse number 15. The Bible says, For you, Christians, did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the capital S. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now hear that, Abba, Father. It's not just Father, distant, formal. No, it's Abba, like Daddy, close. The Holy Spirit lets Christians cry out to God, Abba, Father, because we've been adopted. Verse 16, the Spirit, what does He do for us? The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. That we are. Here's what the Holy Spirit does. He bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Here's what I know is going to happen. It happens all the time. There are people who in this life think they were a Christian and when they die they go to hell and they're totally shocked. They're shocked. Because they had told themselves they're a Christian. But no true Christian will ever be shocked in the next life. They're going to die and they're going to go to heaven. And they're not going to be surprised by it. They're going to love it and they're going to be surprised by how great it is. But not, by, not surprised by that, the fact that they are there. Why? They expect it. They have this thing called faith. I'm planning on it. I have faith. I better go there. He said he would do that and I took him up on it. They have faith. So if I ever ask you, hey, are you going to go to heaven when you die? If in, if I ask you right now. If in your heart you're like... Well, I hope so. I, I hope so. We'll see. Hey, if that is your real answer, I hope so, we'll see, then you're not a Christian. Because Christians have faith. Will you go to heaven when you die? Absolutely. Well, you said that kind of arrogant. It's not arrogant. I'm confident. The Bible says I'm going to go to heaven. I've done what the Bible says. All I've done is trusted Christ. Have to. The Holy Spirit tells me. I'm a Christian. It's one thing he does for us. Number two, he gives assistance in our prayers. That's also in Romans 8. You might want to turn to Romans 8. It might help you, by the way. Romans 8. Just flip over there. Look at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. What else does he do? He also helps us in our weakness. For we do not know. Carol talked about this Monday night at the Women's Prayer Day. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. 
Is that effective? He's not even using words? Is the Spirit not using words work? Yes, it does because verse 27. And he who searches hearts, that's God the Father, knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I've got to move on. Holy Spirit assists us. Remember, by the Spirit we say, Abba, Father. So he helps us and he prays for us. He assists in prayer. Number three. This one will have you leave Romans for a moment. This is an important one. He gives us understanding of God's truth. The Holy Spirit, what does he provide? Understanding of God's truth. There it is. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Now, you ought to be checking yourself here. If, you're, if you say, I'm a Christian, well, be checking yourself. Does the Holy Spirit do these things for you? Does he give you assurance that you're a ch- child of God? Does he assist in your prayers? Number three, does he give you understanding of God's truth? Look at 1 Corinthians 2, notice verse 10. I'm jumping in the middle of a verse. You'll still get the feel of it. So there's this mysterious wisdom of God that the world doesn't know. But watch verse 10, Christian. These things God has revealed to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So you may think I meant something, but I know what I meant. I may think you meant something that you didn't say, but in your spirit, you know yourself. You know your thoughts in your spirit. Look at verse 11. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Oh, that sounds like it might be helpful. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. One of the reasons God gave us the spirit is so that we could understand the things freely given to us by God. So guys, here's here's what that means. If you're a Christian, as you continue to live and study God's word, here's what should happen. You're going to find some difficult things that are hard to understand, but the vast majority of it, if you'll slow down, you'll be like, okay, I get that. That makes sense. This is a spiritual book that's over our head. We're not going to get the truth unless the one who wrote it comes, lives inside of us, and he helps us to actually understand. Okay, yeah, this makes sense. i got to slow down and read it thoughtfully and, and pray, Lord, help me. But when I do that, yes, I now know what this passage means. Does that describe you? Number four. I think it's the fourth one. What does he provide? Guidance for God's will. Guidance for God's will. Boy, I skipped my Romans. He gives us guidance for God's will. Look at verse 14 of of Romans. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Are you led by the Spirit of God? Does the Holy Spirit ever prompt you? Hey, turn that off and think about me. Hey, pray to me. Hey, turn this conversation. Hey, hey, hey. I gave you something. I entrusted it to you because I want you to give it to them. So go give it to them. What? Yes, give it to them. Hey, stop believing lies. Hey, tell your kids they can't do that. Where's this coming from? The Holy Spirit's prompting. Are we listening? Are we obeying? Those who are led by the Spirit, they are the, the children of God. Number five, what else does he do? The Holy Spirit provides power over personal sin. Power over personal sin. I'm not even going to read the verses there. It is Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. And what it's talking about is we who are Christians walk by the Spirit. We don't walk by the flesh. By the Holy Spirit, we're putting to death the deeds of the body, the simple deeds of the body. 
Because the Holy Spirit gives us power over personal sin. That's one of the things he does. And then the last one I would have you write. What does the Spirit do for us? He gives us power to deploy our spiritual gifts. I didn't have room for the word spiritual, so you just know. He gives us power to deploy and use our gifts. Look on the screen. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11. All these, the context is of spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to people. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit. Watch this. It's on the screen. Who apportions... Who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So here's what that tells me. The Holy Spirit decides who gets which spiritual gifts. And after he's given us our spiritual gift blend, he now empowers the use of that. And now that takes us to Acts chapter 1 verse 8. If you just wrote those. I want to invite you. You got your paper in front of you? Those that just wrote those. Do you see these six things? Quickly go through that list right now in your mind and say, hey, being honest as I can be, that is true in my life, and that is true, and that is true. Is there one that is lacking? Is there two or three that are lacking? This should be the normal Christian life. Is it normal for you because the Holy Spirit, you say, I'm a Christian. If the Holy Spirit truly lives in you, is this true? He gives you assurance that you're a child of God. He assists you in your prayers. He helps you understand God's truth. He gives guidance for what is God's will and what is not God's will. He gives you personal victory and power over your personal sin. No sin in your life is seen. I can never conquer that. You're going to struggle, but if you'll rely on the Holy Spirit, that in those moments you have victory over it. Whereas before, you had no chance to have victory over sin. And then the power to deploy your spiritual gifts. So those are all good things. I hope you went six for six. You should go six for six. If not, ask the Lord to help you on the one that you need help on. But all of that led to verse 8. But you, we have another reason. What does the Holy Spirit do? When he, when he baptized me in the Holy Spirit, 1979, when I received that, what good did it do me? Write this thought. Acts chapter 1 verse number 8 is clear that one of the primary functions of the Holy Spirit in believers is to empower a believer's witness to Christ. To empower our witness to Christ. This is one of the main things he does. The Holy Spirit empowers Our witness. He does that. So what is a witness? What is a witness? You see, I guess a witness is somebody who teaches and preaches the Bible. No, no, hang on. That's a great thing. What is a witness? We could say it this way. A witness is just one who testifies. A witness is one who bears record of what they've seen, heard, Felt. I can tell you what I saw and tell you what I heard, what I felt. Barclay writes it this way. He says, a witness is a man who says, I know this to be true. He says, in a court of law, a man cannot give a carried story. It must be his own personal experience. Now, Grace, if you really listen here. Being a witness... It's not saying, hey, we got this lady in our church and you really need this. It's great. And that's your main go-to? Trying to talk to somebody? Oh, I want you to meet somebody. She's awesome. Or he's great. Or there's this thing that happened in the Bible. Let me tell you that. Okay, that is great. Teach the Bible. But with that, is there anything that you can say, I know this about God 
in addition to what the Bible says and not contradictory to what the Bible says, I know this to be true about God because it is real in my life. It is personal to me. Do you have something that you could... I know that God is this because this is what happens in my life. That's you being a witness. The Holy Spirit is given to us to empower not just our Bible knowledge and learning and teaching and preaching, but our firsthand witness of things. What is your firsthand witness? What do you share with people? What can you share with people that you know to be true about God firsthand? The apostles were made powerful witnesses of the Lord. Guys, I want you to get what I'm about. I know the last note's about to happen. Click, click, click. I, I, I ran out of room. If I, if I didn't, I would, I would have put this on there. The word witness is one of the absolute key words in the whole book of Acts. It's actually, it, it comes from the same word that we get our word martyr. And that's going to lead into this last note. And remember, there's still a few thoughts. I'm going to shorten it. But just a few thoughts at the end. The apostles witnessed Christ. Personal firsthand stuff. How did they witness? The apostles witnessed to Jesus through their words giving personal testimony. They witnessed to Jesus Christ through their lives. And they witnessed through their deaths. All of those because they were so sure that Jesus really had resurrected from the dead because he had showed himself and appeared to them and spoke to them, showed his hands and feet, ate bread and fish with them. They're so convinced of it that their words, personal, personally, t- personal testimony, witness to Christ, the way they lived their life, even apart from their words, witness to Christ, and the way they died, witnessed to Christ. They're so certain that Jesus had truly resurrected from the dead. You're going to see it in chapter number 2. Peter's going to be preaching along on the day of Pentecost. And he's going to say, God raised, you, you killed him, but God raised him from the dead. And we're witnesses. I saw it. I've seen him after he's been killed. I've seen him alive. I know this firsthand. When Peter writes 2 Peter, he's going to say, he's going to write in his letter, I was on the holy mountain. I heard the voice of the majesty from on high say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I was there. I saw it. We saw him transfigured in front of us. We're going to read Luke's version of Paul's conversion in chapter 9. But later on, we're going to hear Paul tell it two more times. Like over and over. He's going to tell this guy what happened on the road to Damascus. He's going to tell this person what happened on the road to Damascus. Why? Because he's sharing his testimony with his personal, his words of personal experience. I think of John. John writes, John 1.14. We beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He writes 1 John chapter 1, 1 through 3, and he says, That which we have seen, which we have handled, which we've heard with our own ears, this firsthand, I'm telling you what I know to be true. Oh, they shared their testimony. And the Holy Spirit takes our witness and makes it powerful. Peter's going to preach next chapter, and 3,000 are going to get saved. 3,000. Jesus never preached where 3,000 were saved. Peter did. Wait, what? Ivor Powell writes the following about Peter's message on the day of Pentecost. He says, there was nothing particularly attractive about his phraseology. The secret lay not in Peter's artistry, but in the unmistakable power that turned every sentence into an arrow reaching human hearts. 
Holy Spirit made his message, his witness, took his firsthand witness, and it made it very powerful in people's hearts. All right, guys, I'm almost done. Would you look one more time at verse 8? But you will receive power. This is not saying, hey, you can receive power. You will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, now watch the end, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Do you see that progression? Totally not original. Every, I dare say every commentary on Acts is going to have what I'm about to say. If it doesn't, you ought to throw it away. This is the key verse. Verse 8 is the key verse of the whole book. Why? It's the table of contents. It's the outline of the book. Here's what we're going to find. You just read it. They're going to be baptized in the Spirit. They're going to get power. They're going to go be witnesses. And the gospel is going to go to Jerusalem. And then it's going to go to all of Judea. And then it's going to go to Samaria. And it's going to go, again, symbolically speaking, to the ends of the earth. As it goes on these missionary journeys with Paul and ultimately reaches the capital of the Roman Empire, which at that time symbolized, man, like all the earth in these people's world. That's what we're going to see. That's the progression. But it's not just about direction and distance. It's also about degree. Watch. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. It's the degree. You're going to see the gospel go to the Jews. Jerusalem and Judea. And then it's going to go to the Samaritans, the half-Jews. They're half Jew, but they're half Gentile. Can they get saved? And then the gospel is going to go to the uttermost part of the world. Even to us heathen outside the covenant of God in the Old Testament. The, the gospel is going to go even to Gentiles. Yes, even to Gentiles. So we see the direction it's going to go. We see the distance it will go. And we see the degree of people that it will go. And so we finish right here where we were like two and a half months ago. We have to have an emphasis about getting the gospel to the end of the earth. That ought to be a high. Hear, hear me well. Please hear this. We should give high priority to the gospel going to the end of the earth. Why? Why? Why is that important, Jeff? Why you make a big deal about Lottie Moon offering? Why should I care? Why should I grab one of these boxes if I haven't done already? Why? I, 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 I want to I get lunch. And I want to see how my, my, my team does today. Okay, listen. Why does this matter? Because hell is real. And hell is a place of torment and it's eternal. And there's only one way to escape it. And the world has billions of people who've never heard the one way. If they don't hear it, then they can't receive it. If they never hear about Jesus and put their faith in him, they will go to hell and they will not go to heaven. They cannot and will not put their faith and trust in Christ if they never hear about him. So this has to be a high priority. How can you go to the nations? You go to the nations physically by leaving America and going. It starts right here. God, I am surrendered to your will, and I'm going to say, stay sensitive to your will. Is God calling you to leave and go to the nations? If he doesn't do that, you're still surrendered and sensitive. But you are praying for those who do go, and you're praying for people groups or even individual specific people who are out there to start getting saved. We go, we pray, and we give. I gave you this as a blessing to reach those people. Be a giver. But all the while, making a high priority of foreign missions. I'd be wrong if I said that's our primary focus. 
because the order matters. You will receive power when the whole... Hey, apostles, you're in Jerusalem right now. You're Jerusalem. Their Jerusalem was Jerusalem. You will receive power and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria and then to the end of the earth. So what that tells me is that every church must place a high priority on pioneer foreign missions. But every church must also have as its first focus of ministry the area that it exists in. That's the first. Oswald Smith said, The light that shines the farthest will shine the brightest at home. The light that shines, you got, let's say, got ten lights. The one that goes the farthest, I see. We, yeah, we still see that one. It's, it's, the, it's the blue one. That's the only one, yeah. All right, it shines the far. Go look at the blue one up close. It's the brightest one. We want a church that is so, that is so in tune with this that we reach the nations, but it's because we are really working and digging in here first. It's not an either or, it's a both and. That's what we're called to be. Would you stand with me this morning? Let's stand. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for our passage today. Father, I thank you for, for your patience with us. We, we do have great curiosity about the future, and that's very normal and natural. Lord, you know that these areas that you do not reveal certain things, we wonder about them and our minds go there. But Father, I pray that we would hear your call today to go ahead and wonder those things and, and offer them to you, but to be very busy doing the clear things that we know. Father, I pray that we would be people that are not so consumed with when your kingdom is coming, but that we want to be bringing people into the kingdom spiritually through faith in Christ. So, Lord, I pray that you would cause us to be witnesses who have our testimonies empowered by your Holy Spirit this week. This week, Lord, I pray that every Christian, I, I pray, Father, that every Christian here this morning would have opportunity and that we would share our firsthand personal experiences that we know are real and genuine that we can offer in addition to what your word teaches and, Lord, would your Holy Spirit just empower that in a way that causes people to become converts to Christ. And then may we move them toward becoming disciples and obedient followers of Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a great week.